morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tobias, and I'm the director of adult discipleship here at Christ the King. I'm also a pastoral intern uh, here at our presbytery in the Blue Ridge. This morning, we're going to be looking at James 5, 7 through 11, as we near the end of our study of the New Testament letter of James. And as we do so, we need to bear in mind how this passage relates to what we considered last week in verses 1 through 6, which was a pretty unsettling passage for us to hear, wasn't it? After all, in those six verses, we heard James bring a relentless, almost prophetic rebuke against those who would oppress God's people. We heard him call these oppressors to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. We heard him castigate their willful and foolish self-indulgence, having fattened their own hearts at the expense of others. Indeed, we heard his dreadful indictment that they had condemned and murdered the righteous person. And do you remember how James brings that passage to a close in verse 6? He says that the righteous man does not resist. Take that in for a moment. The righteous man does not resist. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 39. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Friends, we need to bear this in mind as we consider our passage this morning. You see, it's in light of the suffering and persecution of God's people and their non-resistance in the face of it that here James turns to his brothers and sisters and exhorts them to follow the path of godly wisdom. And so I invite you to open your copy of God's Word, uh, James 5, 7 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to use the one uh, under the chair in front of you. Friends, hear now the holy, inspired, and infallible word of the Lord our God. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you this morning and we are humbled before you. And we recognize that you alone are the one true God who has demonstrated faithfulness and steadfast love, compassion and mercy to your people. Oh, Father, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would humble our hearts, that you would open our ears and our eyes 
to receive the word that you have for us today and change us by it. Oh, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I imagine many of you uh, have seen Peter Jackson's adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's novel, The Return of the King. It's the final film in his trilogy about the Fellowship of the Ring, and it depicts in a fairly satisfactory way. Where's Chad? <laughs> Chad Mosby's a huge Tolkien fan. Okay, yeah. In a fairly satisfactory way, uh, it depicts the Fellowship's final and victorious battle against the forces of evil in Middle-earth. And yet, even though it ends with the good guys winning, I find it a bleak and difficult movie to watch. You see, more often than not, as the story unfolds, all hope appears to be lost for the Fellowship. And their frequent experience of suffering and misfortune exacts such a toll on them that many of their company begin to despair of any hope of a happy resolution. And this is certainly true of the little hobbit Pippin. You remember him? Indeed, during the siege of the White City, as he and the wise wizard Gandalf look out over the ramparts to the battlefield below and take in the fierce and countless forces of darkness amassed against them, Pippin's courage begins to fail him. And so he turns to Gandalf and he says to him, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf responds, <coughs> end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of the world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. And Pippin, obviously captivated by this picture, asks him, what, Gandalf? See what? White shores, he adds, and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. And, and then with rather understated and hobbitish reassurance, Pippin says, well, that isn't so bad. <laughs> no, says Gandalf, no, it isn't. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but that's a moving scene to me. And what I love most about it is how it captures the kindness and wisdom of Gandalf at the sight of his friend's suffering. You see, as he listened to Pippin and sensed that he was on the brink of despair, he recognized that the only thing that would offer him hope and bolster his courage was a change in his perspective. Indeed, he knew that what he needed in that moment was to see with fresh eyes a grand vision of the beauty that lay beyond their present painful circumstances. And so as a compassionate guide and friend, Gandalf reoriented Pippin's focus off of the battle below and onto the blessed world that awaited them. And friends, this is not unlike what we see in our passage this morning. You see, James has just painted a rather bleak picture of the Christian life in verses 1 through 6, hasn't he? That it's often attended by injustice and suffering <clears throat> at, at the hands of those who would oppress God's people. And what's more, that the Lord doesn't 
call his people to, to resist with violence in the face of it. And so here, in light of such seemingly dire circumstances, James, as a wise and compassionate pastor, turns to his brothers and sisters and reorients their focus off their present trials and away from vengeful impulses and onto the blessed return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is evident right from the beginning of the passage. Take a look at verses 7 and 8. James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for, pre- pre- for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Friends, did you notice how he repeats the theme of Christ's return here? Be patient, he sells, says, until the coming of the Lord. And then he adds in verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see, James is trying to grab his listeners' attention here. He's trying to reorient their focus off their present circumstances and onto the return of the Lord Jesus, which is not some distant pipe dream, but actually at hand. Indeed, it's the next great thing on God's timetable. But we need to make sure we have a clear picture of the coming of the Lord and why James emphasizes it here. You see, the coming of the Lord had long been associated with Christ's return to judge the wicked. And Jesus himself had laid the foundation for this belief when he said in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so James's listeners surely were well aware that the Lord's return would prove to be a dreadful day for the enemies of God. Indeed, it would be a day of slaughter as James calls it in verse 5. And yet they also believed that the coming of the Lord would be a time of unbridled joy and deliverance for God's people. Much like what the Apostle Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17, for the Lord himself, he says, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. What a glorious day that will be. And friends, it's this blessed deliverance at the coming of the Lord that James is trying to get his listeners to set their minds upon as they face their trials. Indeed, it's as if he were saying to them, brothers and sisters, I know that you're suffering. I know that at times your situation might seem hopeless, but do not despair. It's only for a season. Our Savior is coming, and he will right this wrong. And yet as glorious as that day will be, when it will happen is not for us to know. You see, its timing is hidden safe in the unsearchable mind of the Father. Not even the Lord Jesus himself knows. 
Indeed, remember what he said in Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So what then? What are God's people to do in the meantime? How should they respond to the oppression they face as they bear the name of Christ? Indeed, how should you and I respond? Friends, James provides us with an answer to these questions as he directs us to embrace patience in light of the Lord's certain return. Take another look at verses 7 and 8 and notice James's repetition of the theme of patience. Not only does he call his listeners to be patient twice, but he also draws their attention to the life of the farmer as an example of patience. And friends, it's this example of the farmer that I think is especially instructive for us as we consider James's exhortation. You see, we know that the farmer is faced with a grueling task, don't we? As he labors intensely under the sun, he's compelled to endure his work with patience because no matter how hard he tries, he still has to wait for the rains to come and usher in the harvest. Friends, this is a heavy burden to bear. And yet he's willing to bear it precisely because he recognizes the rich value of the harvest. Indeed, notice what James says in verse 8, in verse 7, excuse me. He says that the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Friends, we need to let this sink in for a moment. The harvest is precious to him. And it's precisely because the farmer values the harvest so highly that he's willing to endure with patience the daily pain of his labor. After all, it's only for a season, and the reward is great. And friends, it's this perspective that James is urging his listeners to adopt as they face their own trials. Indeed, he's calling them to fix their eyes on the certain and glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ and to wait patiently for his harvest of blessing. And then notice what he adds in verse 8. He says, establish your hearts. Now we need to be careful not to confuse what James is saying here with some kind of calloused call to self-reliance. As if he were saying to them, okay y'all, I've called you to patience and I know that can be hard, but you're just going to have to suck it up and do it. Establish your hearts. Friends, that's not what he's saying here at all. You see, to establish your heart is to consecrate it to the purposes of the Lord. But more than that, it's to lay it before the Lord Jesus for him to consecrate by his grace. And we see this clearly in what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. He says, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all the saints. Friends, did you catch that? He says, so that he may establish your hearts. And so what James is doing here is inviting his listeners in the midst of their suffering to place themselves into the faithful hands of their heavenly Father, as they wait patiently for his deliverance. And you know, James's whole point here reminds me of that precious hymn by William Cooper, God Moves 
in mysterious ways. You remember how it goes? Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. But you know, if we're honest, I think we all recognize that embracing patience in the midst of suffering and injustice is easier said than done, don't we? Indeed, aren't we all keenly aware of just how tempting and easy it is for us in the midst of our suffering to lose our patience and vent our anger on those we love? But you know, James understood this. And I think this is why he goes on in verse 9 to give his listeners a word of caution. Notice what he says in the first half of the verse. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. And what he actually has in mind here are the verbal jabs and nasty infighting that often erupt when people face suffering. You know what I'm talking about. And you know, as a pastor, James seemed to be especially attuned to this particular temptation for the people of God. And I think this is why, throughout our study of his letter, we've heard him condemn sinful speech among believers over and over again. But then notice what he adds in the second half of, the verse, of verse 9. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you not, may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Here again, we see James return to the theme of the coming of the Lord. But this time, he doesn't emphasize his deliverance. Instead, he emphasizes the Lord's judgment. And I imagine the language James uses here is a bit surprising for many of us. After all, we're accustomed to thinking of the image of Jesus standing at the door with words of comfort and grace, aren't we? Indeed, the Apostle John says in Revelation 3.21, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. But friends, we also need to keep in mind what John says just before in verse 20. He says, therefore, be zealous and repent. And so we need to remember, friends, that although the Lord Jesus does indeed offer himself to us freely, he also calls us to turn to him in repentance and to walk in his ways. But friends, when we grumble rather than embracing patience, when we lash out in the midst of our suffering, we reveal that we're listening to the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom from above. And in doing so, we open ourselves up to God's judgment. And perhaps it's instructive for us that James's language here is so similar to the words of our Lord Jesus when he says in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Brothers and sisters, we need to let this sink in. James, as a wise and compassionate pastor, is offering us a profound warning here. And we need to listen carefully to what he has to say. And I think its significance is captured in what the New Testament scholar Peter Davids writes about this verse. Listen to what he has to say. The nearness of the coming of the Lord is not just a call to look forward to the judgment of sinners, but it is also a warning 
to examine one's own behavior so that when the one whose footsteps are nearing finally knocks on the door, one may be prepared to open it. Friends, these are weighty words, aren't they? And I think it'd be easy for us to be overwhelmed by James's exhortation here, perhaps even discouraged by our own repeated failures in the midst of our trials to wait patiently upon the Lord and to walk faithfully in his ways. But you know, I think James understood this. Indeed, I think he recognized that his listeners could use a word of encouragement. And I think this is why we hear James in the final two verses of this passage turn to his brothers and sisters and draw their attention to examples of faithful men and women who've steadfastly walked a similar path. Take a look at verses 10 and 11. 10 and 11. Notice what he writes. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But perhaps you're a bit surprised by James' choice of examples here. And you're thinking to yourself, a word of encouragement? <laughs> Tobias, really? The suffering prophets? Job? <laughs> How could James ever have expected to encourage his listeners with this? And you know, I get that. After all, Scripture gives us, gives us numerous examples of how horribly the prophets of old suffered as they spoke the word of God. Indeed, who can forget the gruesome portrait the writer of Hebrews paints in chapter 11, verses 35 through 38? But friends, we need to recognize that James doesn't mention the prophets here so that his listeners would dwell on their misery. Not at all. Instead, he's reminding them of two important things. First, he's reminding them that the prophets were able to endure their suffering, not because they were super saints, but because their eyes were trained off their temporal misery and onto the coming of the Lord. Indeed, like Abraham, they were looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And second, James is reminding his listeners to embrace a truth about God that they apparently already believed. And that is that the Lord blesses his people in their steadfastness. Notice again what he says in verse 11. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remained faithful. And you know, James's language here reminds me of what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who, who were before you. And perhaps it might surprise you, but I find James's use of Job here particularly encouraging. You see, I'm well aware of my own failure to heed James's exhortation, to wait patiently upon the Lord and not grumble against my brothers and sisters in the midst of the trials I face. Indeed, my own family is keenly aware <laughs> of my own failures. But you know, Job struggled with this too. 
Indeed, as he suffered the loss of his health and reputation, his worldly goods, and, and even his family, at times he too lost his patience and responded in anger. And yet in the midst of all his unimaginable loss, his faith in the Lord remained constant. Indeed, he remained steadfast. And perhaps it's instructive for us that James doesn't mention Job's patience here, but his steadfastness. And yet I don't think James is drawing his listeners' attention to Job merely as an example of steadfastness. More importantly, I think he's calling them as they consider the life of Job to fix their eyes on the gracious and unchanging character of God and to remember that the Lord is purposely present with his people in the midst of their suffering. Notice again what he says at the end of verse 11. He says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Indeed, it's as if James were saying to his listeners here, friends, I know you remember the suffering and steadfastness of Job, but do you understand the significance of his story? That he came to know the Lord more deeply through his trials. That he came to see him as he'd never seen him before. And what's more, that the Lord never left him, but in the end richly blessed his faithfulness. The Lord intends the same for you. Trust in his goodness and wait patiently upon him. So perhaps you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I hear what you're saying. And I understand that God is at work on my behalf, even in the midst of my, my pain that I'm experiencing. And I understand that he calls me to endure it with patience. But Tobias, you don't know the depth of my suffering. And you have no idea how often I've given in to anger and lashed out at the ones I love in the midst of it. How can I embrace in any meaningful way something that's been so elusive in my own life? Friend, I want you to know that you're not alone. Indeed, I imagine most of us in this room can sympathize with how difficult it is to embrace patience in the midst of our suffering. But you know, I actually think this is a good place for us to be. You see, recognizing our own weakness pushes us to look outside ourselves for strength. In fact, it pushes us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone endured suffering and injustice with perfect patience. And it pushes us to find in him not only the strength we lack, but the fullest and sweetest expression of the compassion and mercy of our Lord. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Samuel Rodriguez's beautiful hymn, Whate'er My God Ordains is Right. And as I've considered James's words this morning, I've been reminded of what we sing in the third stanza. Remember how it goes? Whate'er my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morning a new sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart and pain and sorrow shall depart. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? 
Do you believe that the trials you're experiencing, however painful, are only for a season? And that the Lord is coming for you, rich with blessing. Friends, put your confidence in the, in the goodness of the Lord and wait patiently upon him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we again as your creatures bow before you and we acknowledge that many times in the course of our lives you have ordained suffering for us in your wisdom. Oh Father, we ask that you by your grace will give us strength to bear it with patience. Oh Lord, we ask that you will supply what we lack. And we pray this all in the mighty name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Uh, I'll invite the, the uh, ushers to come forward for this morning's tithes and offerings. <laughs>